Well, good morning. It's uh, wonderful to be able to come down and uh, express our fellowship by worshiping with you here this morning and hear some of our uh, Lord's teaching from the Sermon on the Mounts. Uh, as I was uh, working on this sermon the first time I preached it and, and uh, working on this sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, there was a moment when I was talking with our senior pastor, Ryan, about you know, who was doing what in the preaching schedule. And I wanted to express that I understood that this passage was my responsibility. But what I actually said was, I've got anxiety. You know, like any good pastor, he was like, are you okay? (laughs) But as I thought about it, you know, that misspeaking, maybe I spoke truer than I knew, because who doesn't have at least a little bit of anxiety? Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who had a lot to say about anxiety, said the following, anyone who really knows mankind might say that there is not one single living human being who does not despair a little, who does not secretly harbor an unrest, an inner strife, a disharmony, an anxiety about an unknown something or something he does not even dare to try to know, an anxiety about some possibility in existence or an anxiety about himself. According to Kierkegaard, everyone really has anxiety. It's just that some of us do a better job of numbing it. But just because we've numbed our anxiety, that doesn't mean that we're not anxious. Well, this morning we're going to see what Jesus has to say about this topic of anxiety that touches us all. Jesus' teaching on anxiety comes in the middle of his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, In his progress through this sermon, Jesus has been talking a lot about our desires and feelings. In the previous section, this involved talking about treasure and money. He uh, exhorted us to lay up our treasure in heaven. He told us we can't serve both God and money. But now maybe he goes a little deeper. You know, why, why is it that we want money in the first place? One reason might be that we are anxious. We want to store up wealth to assuage our worries about what the future might bring. And so, at this point in the sermon, Jesus turns to anxiety. Let's hear what he has to say in Matthew chapter 6, starting with verse 25. Oh, and let's please stand for the reading of God's word. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray for our time. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to understand this word that you have given us and that you would grow us more in our dependence and trust on you through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Okay, so as we look at what Jesus has to say about anxiety today, we're going to see three points. Number one, what is anxiety according to Jesus? Number two, what can we do about anxiety according to Jesus? And number three, we're going to see how Jesus, as God become human, takes on the cares of the world. So we're going to see what is anxiety, what can we do about anxiety, and then we're going to look at Jesus. Okay, so for the first point, what is anxiety? The word Jesus uses here could be translated as either anxiety or worry or care. Actually, this word isn't always a bad thing in the Bible. Sometimes it describes someone who really cares about God or who really cares about other people. And that's not a bad thing, is it? After all, if you've ever met somebody who doesn't care about anything or anyone, that's not necessarily a healthy place to be, right? It's a good thing to be appropriately invested in other people's welfare, When we really care about God and other people, it can help us to be conscientious in fulfilling our responsibilities. Uh, So today, I'm going to use the word care to describe this good kind of concern, or it might be good or might be bad, and I'll use worry and anxiety for the bad kind. But if caring about other people is not necessarily bad, what kind of caring, what kind of worry is Jesus calling us away from here? Well, let's observe a few of his features. First, it's directed towards our needs, especially our physical needs. Am I going to have enough to eat and drink? Am I going to have clothes to wear? These are just examples of the broad category, do not be anxious about your life. We are finite, dependent creatures, and our lives are fragile things. So it's no wonder that we think a lot about what we need in order to survive. And it's clear that Just caring about these things is not necessarily always wrong. Jesus says your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He's just finished teaching his disciples the Lord's Prayer, which we just said, where we pray for our daily bread. Uh, And when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, he implies that it's appropriate to seek to care for our bodies as long as it's not the first thing that we seek. So where does this go wrong? Well, we've already seen the first thing right there. The first sign that care has become worry is when it becomes first, when it crowds out everything else, when it gets ahead of loving God and our neighbor. Jesus also highlights a couple of other warning signs. Care becomes worry when it doesn't accomplish anything productive in our lives. Jesus says, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? This is, how off, off, this is so how anxiety is a lot of the time, isn't it? Our thoughts nervously circle around a problem like a computer program that's gotten stuck in a loop. What are the things that send your thought life spiraling off? 
Maybe you are in conflict with somebody and you don't know how to resolve it. Maybe you have a work project and you aren't sure you can do it. In those situations, I've noticed that even if I know what I'm supposed to do, let's imagine I'm supposed to send an email to a particular person with particular information. Um, and, you know, maybe I should read through it twice, check my tone to make sure I don't cause offense. But what often happens instead? I get stuck in this mind loop, like rehearsing all the scenarios, how it could go wrong. And eventually, for me, that often leads to me procrastinating the task. And in the end, my fear of failure actually means I don't succeed at all. There's other kinds of situations as well, though, aren't there? Ones where we don't, can't really do anything. Will I be included in the next round of layoffs? Will my kid be okay when they go off to college? Will that medical test come back positive? I really like this last example of a medical test. Because think about this in terms of a rational decision-making process. How much time should I devote to thinking about what the result of a medical test will be? Zero, right? Nothing I can do can influence the outcome one way or the other. If the test comes back positive, there'll be plenty of time to figure out what to do. Uh, so, it would be a waste of time and energy even to think about it. Okay, but how many of us can really manage that when we have a, te a medical test? Uh, it's a matter which concerns our very life. I think many of us would get drawn into that loop of worrying. So that's two signs Jesus has given us. When our care, our concern becomes the first thing, and when it's not productive. The third sign that our caring has become worry is when it casts itself far off into the future. Jesus says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So our worry is connected to time. Rather than living in the present, we peer out into the misty future. Maybe that's why we have so much anxiety these days. One might think that we would worry a lot less than Jesus' original hearers. After all, most of them depended on subsistence farming to survive, and that meant they were only one bad harvest away from bad times. Uh, no wonder they worried about whether their needs were going to be met. But what about us? Modern technology has made such vast strides in food and clothing production and medicine. So that means we should worry a lot less, right? But I don't think that's how worry works. If worry is satisfied for today, then it hurries off to worry about tomorrow. If we have enough for this month or this year, what about the year after that? What about sending our kids to college? What about retirement? What about end-of-life medical complications? What if the whole financial system collapses and wipes out our savings? Indeed, it seems that like every innovation that secures our position also brings more opportunities for worry. Jesus' hearers couldn't dream of the surplus income and financial instruments we have today, allowing us to passively generate income for retirement. They also couldn't imagine checking their phone for minute-by-minute -minute updates on what the markets were doing. That's right, it's Sunday. They're not doing anything right now. 
One never really becomes content because the creativity of anxiety is endless. It can project out its future to the end of time, and there in the mists, it thinks it sees the shadow of monsters. By the way, I don't see any reason to think that Jesus here is forbidding judicious preparation for the future, the sort of thing Solomon advised when he tells us to go learn from the ants about hard work. But of course, that's not really what unproductive worry does, does it? It rarely works hard today. How could it? It's too busy thinking about the future. Fourth and finally, Jesus wraps up this description of worry with one other description of the problem. He gently rebukes his hearers as, O you of little faith. Care becomes worry when it lacks faith. It's fundamentally a problem of not believing in God and his promises to us. You see, in all the million factors that anxiety permutates in its frantic investigation of the future, there's always one factor that tends to get left out, and that's God and what he's going to do. When we're in the grip of worry, we often feel alone, abandoned even by God. So that's Jesus' diagnosis. What's the deal with us poor, anxiety-ridden folk? Our worry is, number one, the first thing we think about, which crowds out everything else. Number two, it's unproductive. Number three, it's stuck in the future. And number four, it lacks faith. Okay. Deep breath, everyone. Now, what's the answer? What does Jesus teach? Point two, what to do about anxiety? Actually, before I dive right into this, uh, I wanted to briefly address a question I think a lot of people might have. What about medication? You know, that's something that Jesus' listeners didn't have, but it's something we have available to us today. Should we be medicating our anxiety? Well, that's a big question. I'm only going to just answer it very briefly here. I'd point out that we are bodies as well as souls, and that means sometimes we're going to need some physical help as well as spiritual help with our emotional problems. Medication can be a judicious part of that help for some people, although we should use it thoughtfully and wisely. At the same time, the problem is often spiritual as well as emotional, so we shouldn't expect medication to just fix all our problems. Okay, I know this is a big question. Please feel free to come uh, to me with, uh, you know, afterwards if you want to talk about it a little more. And we'll just share uh, one, the first time I ever sat with someone through a panic attack, and I didn't really know how to respond. I asked how to help, and he just said, well, just pray. And in that moment, it was pretty, his faith was so evident to me, but also the fact that his body wasn't really responding to what he knew the way mine did. So it's well worth thinking about the physical side as well as the spiritual side, but we don't want to reduce it to the physical side. All right, enough about that. What does Jesus tell his listeners to do? Well, Jesus' first advice might be summed up in a contemporary phrase from internet slang. Touch grass. Turn off the computer. Go outside. Jesus tells us to go and look at the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. And not just see, but look. Really consider, spend some time on it. And not a caged bird, but a bird of the air that flies free. Not a cultivated lily in a hothouse, but the ones that grow all on their own in the field. Kierkegaard suggests that Jesus is calling us to leave behind human civilization for a while. After all, talking with other humans about your anxiety isn't always helpful, is it? 
You may often be misunderstood, judged, or ridiculed. Nice thing about animals and plants is they don't do that. Jesus might, first of all, be recommending being out alone in nature for our spiritual good. I don't think we should rush past that too quickly. Out there with the birds and the lilies, we may just meet God. After all, Matthew and Luke tell us this was Jesus' practice. He would go off into the wilderness alone to pray. Okay, but what is it that we're supposed to learn from the birds and the lilies? Well, the first thing is simply that they do not work. Oh, sure, the animals, they're busy enough hunting and gathering, and the flowers are always growing, stretching up towards the sun, but this is not really work. Well, why doesn't it count as work? What's interesting, the kinds of work Jesus singles out here all involve human artifice and foresight. He says that the birds do not sow or reap or gather into barns. In other words, they're not involved in agriculture, farming. This human act of forcing nature to provide food where there wasn't any before. The birds must simply depend on the food that to be there, provided for them to find. And the work the lilies do not do is toiling and spinning, making clothing, which must seem so absurd to the animals. This extra cover which we were neither created nor born with to buffer us against the cold wind. The lilies simply abide with what God and their mothers gave them. This uh, makes me think of our rabbit, Brownie. You know, it's true that when the kibbles tinkle in the bowl, no creature under God's heavens is faster <laughs> to make it there and gobble it up. But once she's had her daily meal, then she goes and she stretches out on the turf, and there's no picture of more serenity and peace. She's not thinking about where the next meal is going to come from. Could you even imagine explaining to this creature such human phrases as, time is money? You know, what if I could live like that, enjoy my meal, and then just be chill? You see, although bunnies and birds and lilies don't have a rational intellect capable of understanding who God is the way we can, they also never question their dependence on him. They aren't bewitched by the idea that through work they can somehow become independent. Rather, they just live in dependence, receiving every day what God has to give them. Psalm 104 talks about the animal's relationship to God. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. But Jesus isn't just calling us to be like the animals living without care. He's also calling us to do something only humans can do. If our problem when we're trapped in worry is that we have little faith, then Jesus is calling us here to have faith. And faith means believing in God. He wants us to look at the animals and not just see the animals, but also see God at work. It's God in his providential superintendence of nature, who makes it so that there is food for the bird to find, who empowers the mysterious unfolding of the lily's glory, so much more intricate and beautiful than Solomon in all his finery. And then, if we will just devote a fraction of the intellectual energy which, which worry has placed on predicting the future, and really think about the animals and the plants, 
we're supposed to realize a yet more awesome truth. Our Father in heaven actually values us even more than the birds and the lilies. Are you not of more value than they, says Jesus? Will he not much more clothe you? Jesus wants us to know how our Father sees us. He values us. He knows us. All the glory and the beauty that we see in nature, in our Father's eyes, you are even more glorious. And he's made you to be that way. He knows what you need, and he's able to give it to you. What's more, he gives us a more glorious calling. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This Father who makes us glorious, who feeds and nurtures us, has called us to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. I take it that these are almost synonyms here, that that how we seek God's kingdom is by seeking to live in a righteous way. And that means, first of all, that we live in a way that reflects our Father's will, that we want to do the sorts of things that our Father thinks are good. And since righteousness is sort of the same word as justice in the Bible, it's also a calling that means acting justly towards our neighbors. Jesus calls us into a relationship with our loving Father and a relationship of love to other people. And in this way, Jesus actually gives us a new thing to care about. Dare we even say a holy anxiety? Paul certainly does dare. He talks in 1 Corinthians about being anxious for the things of the Lord, or anxious for the welfare of other members of the body. So the first thing that Jesus gives us to do is to really care about God and other people. If we focus on this care first, it can free us from our endless worry about needing material things. It's a care that builds us up in God's love, that makes us glorious creatures that image his righteousness rather than emptying us out, chasing what does not satisfy. All of this suggests a very simple prayer that we can pray. It's a prayer we can pray even if we get caught up in busyness, if we miss our morning quiet times, if we, as we hurtle along our commute, we can just pray, God, help me do the things that you have for me this day. God, help me do the things that you have for me this day. I've found that to be a very helpful prayer at times in the midst of anxiety. Let me also share with you a little thought exercise from David Pallison, a Christian counselor. He says, begin by imagining two circles, one six feet in diameter and another six inches in diameter. What you need to do today is in the little six-inch circle. Whatever is in the larger six-foot circle, you have to leave in God's hands because you can't control or do anything about those worries. There's just a couple practical exercises to leave you with for this point. One final point, though. Since it's not so far past Christmas, a time when we think about what it means that Jesus is God and also man, that uh, in Jesus God was born as a little baby. I want us to think a little this morning about what it means for the Son of God to be born as a baby. Uh, The mystery of the Incarnation is that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And there was once a whole church council to tell us that includes his will. Jesus has a human will along with a human nature. And that means that Jesus has properly human desires and even human natural fears. 
I've been thinking about this as I worked on this sermon. What does it mean? What does that mean for a little baby? What is it like to be a baby? It's to be dependent, to need, to need food, to need to be cleaned, to need love, because we know infants need the caring affection of their parents. And it means that you need all of those things without being able to go and get them. Infants do not make great workers. If you're thinking of hiring one, I'd recommend against it. You can only really do one thing as a newborn baby. Cry. Here we have to do away, I think, with that sentimental line, in a way, in a manger, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. This has no basis in the scriptures. We might prefer a line from Shakespeare. When we are born, we cry that we are come to this great stage of fools. Crying is our first experience of the futility and darkness of the world. And as one who's come to take the futility of the world upon his shoulders, I imagine that the infant Jesus cried. But more than that, Jesus learned, for the scriptures also say that as a human, he learned things. Jesus learned through his parents' care what it meant to have a father and mother who listen when you cry. Here we should remember David's words in Psalm 22, 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. These words seem to refer to an infant learning its mother's care and at the same time learning faith, at least trust in God, because his mother's care is a sign of God's care. I don't know how to tell if or how a nursing infant has faith, although the child is without the power of words or anything in the way of intellect. But whatever infants this verse may apply to, I think it surely applies to Jesus first of all. Jesus, already as a baby, had faith in his father's care for him. Those ancient church teachers tell us that though Jesus had a fully human will and a fully divine will, his human will was always in perfect submission to the divine will. So while Jesus was from his first moments exposed to all the natural pains and fears of humanity, exposed to Satan's temptation towards sinful anxiety, he never for a moment gave in but continually rested in his father's care. Jesus is the son of God, and he always trusted his father. You know, I think a lot of what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is just introducing us to his father. He's inviting us to be this father's sons and daughters too. This has been a big takeaway from this study through the Sermon on the Mount for me this year. Jesus doesn't say a lot about himself in the Sermon on the Mount, although he'll end by saying that his teachings are the rock that we're founded on. But throughout the rest of it, he doesn't say a lot about himself. But he's constantly talking about his Father. I think we're used to that, right? We know that we get to call God Father now because Jesus taught us to pray that way in the Sermon on the Mount. But for Jesus' first hearers, many of them wouldn't be that used to referring to God as their Father. This is a really big thing that Jesus is telling us about this Father who values us, loves us, and who he's calling us to trust. God is our Father who loves us. This can be a difficult thing for us. It's hard to believe, hard to trust, that our Father will really give us everything that we need. And certainly this is no promise that a life of faith in God won't have its trials. Faith in God does not immediately cancel out the darkness of the world. There is no denial of human frailty or even death in Jesus' teaching here. He doesn't shy away from the fact that the beautiful flower will wither and be thrown into the fire. 
What's more, sufficient for the day, and here I prefer the stronger translation, sufficient for the day is its own evil. The days are evil. Every day in a fallen world has its own little bit of evil to deal with. And certainly Jesus knew this since his own faith didn't exempt him from suffering, but rather he lived like one of the animals he mentions here. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He even had to take on all the suffering and sin of his people and bear it to the cross. But Jesus' faith in the Father's love for him, his faith in the fact that his Father valued him, was strong enough for that. Jesus never gave in to worry. He wasn't anxious about his life. The stunning mystery of Christmas is that this eternal relationship of God the Father and God the Son is now something that humans are invited into in some way. Jesus fulfills this relationship perfectly, a perfect union of man and God, even already as a little infant. And what's more, he does it perfectly on our behalf, so that by free grace we can know what it means for the Father to value us as he does Christ. It's not because of our works. We don't need to have any anxiety about earning our Father's favor. It's because Christ has lived this out in a human nature on our behalf. And having been forgiven and accepted, we're invited into this kingdom, into this work of righteousness, into this relationship of trust in our Father. Our Heavenly Father knows what you need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you know what we need, that you value and care for us. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Help us to know deeply from the heart your loving care for us. Help us to trust your promises. Thank you for Jesus, his teaching, and his life and death on our behalf. And help us to depend on you in response to it. 